You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to the show today. In fact, Alex is off doing some important work around the station. We have Alex, who or Daniel, who will be producing the show. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with all of our Radio Maria listeners and all of our uh, Health Hub listeners. It's nice to see you doing well, Kathy. Thank you, Daniel. It's great. Uh, you know, Alex is so busy around here, and you are you're doing a fantastic job. Uh, Daniel's actually produced a couple of the shows on the on the QT, and he's done a great job. So, thank you, Daniel. As I've always said, it takes a a village to do such a wonderful job on the show. So, it's very much appreciated by myself. Today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. You can reach out to us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and our handle is at the Health Hub RMC. And please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Our uh, shows are all turned over into a podcast format, so please do sub- subscribe to our podcast. We are The Health Hub, and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca, and you can find them on my website, www.kathybiasse.com. And again, if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us a comment. Our show last week, Functional Genomics with Dr. Mansour Muhammad, is up and ready for you to listen to. My goodness, uh, that was a very jam-packed podcast. We had so much information in that podcast. It's, uh, you know, I had to, actually, Daniel said last week at the end of the show, we're going to have listened to that a couple of times to extract all the information, and, and I have. It was quite, quite informative. So do take a listen to it if you have some time and love to get your feedback on that. It was really a great show. So I wanted to talk to you today about osteoporosis and your bone health, but I want to framework this first by giving you an understanding of all of the functions that your bones have within your body. And contrary to what many, many people think, functions of the bone extend far beyond just holding us up and being an anchor for muscles and tendons. And it's important to understand the function of our bones so you can better grasp why taking care of them is so vital for your overall health. So along with uh, support, our bones protect us. Our ribs cover many vital organs and very important part of the protection of our inner being. So that's, that's, one, that's one that you may have um, been familiar with. But uh, the one that I think a lot of people are, are 
actually surprised by when I mentioned to this when I'm talking with people about the importance of bone health is that uh, blood is produced in the marrow of your bones. So very important uh, to understand that. So the health of your bones is important for your blood production. Your bones also are the storage place for many minerals, such as the commonly known one for bone health, which is calcium. And our bones release a hormone called osteocalcin. And this is also a very important um, uh, hormone to be released for homeostasis within your body. And our bones do help to regulate sugar and fat deposits. So a very brief introduction to why your bones are important beyond uh, beyond the, the keeping us up sort of um, aspect of them. And that uh, hopefully will set the framework for talking about osteoporosis, which I'm going to head into right now. Osteoporosis is a disease where the density and quality of the bone are reduced. Very, very common as we age, but I think what we need to understand is that laying the groundwork for bone health early in life will set the stage for healthy bones as we age. When this happens, the skeletal weakness um, is increased and we are far more susceptible to fractures, especially of the spine, our wrist, hip, legs, and pelvis. And I think we had a guest on uh, a while ago who said that, um, you know, when elderly people break their hip, it's a, a very, very tough road back to, to recovery, and many people do die of that. So it, very, very important to keep our, um, our bones healthy. Osteoporosis, unfortunately, is often not diagnosed until a fracture happens. But there are uh, a couple of signs. One is um, your height may um, weaken or weaken, shorten a little bit because of compression and a curvature of the back. They may be really the only two physical symptoms of osteoporosis, but um, a decreased bone density and fractures are um, are absolutely the, uh, the, the height of risk for osteoporosis. Some people have density, bone density tests for various reasons, and that can set a benchmark for you, but um, those are the telltale signs of osteoporosis. Um, As bone loss does increase, uh, growth factors derived from our bones are released, and they can contribute to atherosclerosis, inflammation, calcification, and even cancer. As well, uh, bone density, as our bone density declines, inflammatory cytokines are released into the blood that can cause widespread inflammation. So what I want you to get from this is a how important it is to take good care of your bones as you get older. And then with this next section, I'm just going to give you a couple of very meaningful ways to maintain the health of your bones. So two key areas. One is diet, of course. So maintaining a healthy diet and ensuring you're receiving key nutrients, which includes D3, K2, magnesium, calcium, boron, manganese, and zinc. Many of us, especially if we're still on the Western diet, do not get the amount we need through our diet. Oftentimes a supplement is needed. So bearing in mind the, the minerals and vitamins that you need for proper bone health, take action if you're not getting them and take some supplements to improve your bone health. And finally, weight-bearing exercises. Any activity that requires a forceful muscular contraction will potentially cause bone growth. 
And the greater demands you place on your skeletal system, the greater the response. So weight-bearing activities. And you don't have to bench press. You don't have to go to the gym every other day. But even walking up the stairs, picking up your groceries, picking up babies, things like that cause weight-bearing. Of course, the more you do, the heavier the weight, the more exertion on the bone, the better for your health. So I hope that gives you uh, a couple of good ideas of how to keep your bones healthy and a very good concept of how important your bones are for our overall health. And on to our show today, we are talking about the opioid crisis with Dr. Lloyd Setterer. And he is an adjunct professor at the Columbia School of Public Health. He is chief medical officer for the NYS Office of Mental Health, the nation's largest state mental health agency. And he is contributing writer for Psychology Today, the New York uh, Journal of Books, and the New York Daily News, among other publications. He was medical editor for mental health for the Huff Post, where over 250 of his posts were published. He has served as mental health commissioner for NYC, medical director EVP for McLean Hospital, a Harvard teaching facility, and as director of clinical services for the American Psychiatric Association. He has written hundreds of articles on mental health, the addictions, and book, film, and TV theater reviews, and he has published dozens of books. His most recent book is The Addiction Solution, Treating Our Dependence on Opioids and Other Drugs. This is going to be a fascinating show, folks. We have had lots of people chime in with questions, so obviously it's a hot-button topic for many. Our learning points today, among others, are, are there valid reasons for using opioids? How did we get to this crisis point? And who is most impacted? We will be back in a few minutes. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Thumbs up again to that great music. Daniel, nice job. Uh, we are live today. Our number is 416-245-1534. If you'd like to call in, please do. I know you may feel a little bit anxious, but we're ready here to answer the phones. We've had a lot of questions that have been sent in to us, but if something strikes you, uh, do give us a call. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC. And again, email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lloyd. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's so great that you're covering this topic. It is. And, you know, I, part of the one of the questions that was sent in to us was uh, we're going to get to at some point uh, the difference between the impact of this in Canada and the U.S. because I think um, we get more notoriety from the U.S. But instead of getting ahead, let's just start at the beginning. Obviously, this is an issue that you take great, um, you know, urgency in. And you've written this book why Why did you write this book? You've written so many things. Why this particular t- subject matter? I wrote this book because we have an epidemic underway in this country. Um, I don't know if it's been declared an epidemic in Canada, but the uh, use and the deaths uh, from uh, opioids, which we need to define, uh, continue to rise. This is uh, regarded as an epidemic. It's killing too many people. And yet it's an epidemic that we can control. It's just that we're not applying some basic principles of public health to do so. And consequently, the death rate continues to rise. 
Well, you, you hit on something there at the beginning, because when I was uh, doing some research on this, I don't know a lot about um, these types of medications. So maybe you can clarify for us what an opioid is, some of the common opioids that we might have heard from, and how they differentiate from other common classifications of drugs. Please, but if I might make one additional comment mm-hmm. about epidemics, because uh, your listeners uh, know, understand epidemics and understand how we've beaten back so many epidemics. Think of polio. Think of smallpox. Think of how we've reduced deaths from driving accidents, how we've reduced cigarette smoking, how we changed the landscape of HIV AIDS. These were all epidemics and they were killing too many people and they're examples of how we can succeed and what we can learn and apply that to opioids. Now opioids is a general term that umbrellas both naturally growing substances and synthetic made in labs and they all essentially operate on the same receptor in the brain, the opioid receptor, the so-called mu receptor and these include uh, opium, morphine, oxycontin, Vicodin, fentanyl, uh, uh, heroin. These are all uh, opioids. They all work in the same way on the brain, whether they're taken by mouth or by uh, syringe. Well, you set a great framework saying that uh, obviously you believe that there are ways to deal with this. But how did we get here? A few things uh, converged, at least in the United States, uh, and I suspect uh, migrated north as well. In the about 20 years ago, pain was uh, recognized as underdetected and undertreated. Too many people were in too much pain and not receiving uh, uh, medication for their pain. And in the United States, that turned into a standard. Hospitals and doctors had to measure pain. And some of you may have seen this, you know, these smiley to unhappy faces, zero to 10 pain rating scales. And they became standardized in the delivery of health care. Uh, and many people reported eight or nine uh, as their score. At the same time, the pharmaceutical industry, particularly one major uh, producer and distributor, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the manufacturers, distributors of OxyContin, promoted its use enormously in this country, claiming that it did not cause addiction. And uh, you basing that on some uh, two insubstantive uh, reports and uh, but marketed this uh, enormously to uh, doctors and patients. So suddenly we were measuring pain and we were told we have an effective treatment that has no addictive potential. That set the stage for the uh, growth uh, and use and consequently abuse of these substances. More recently, in the past 10 or 15 years, it seems, in, at least in this country, the changing uh, use, uh, the changing demographics where these substances are used by home, more middle class, middle America people, uh, seems related to what we call uh, diseases of despair. Um, unemployment, lack of prospects, uh, chronic pain, um, 
and little prospects for themselves or their children. These are the environments that produce risk. They've always produced risk in inner cities for use of heroin and other opioids, and now that's spread. So we have measurements, we have medications, and uh, we have uh, uh, social malaise, and these all come together, and we have an epidemic. You mentioned that 20 years ago an epidemic of pain started. You're talking physical pain? Yes, these were um, the, these pain scales were were specifically about physical pain, uh, people's uh, pain that might be uh, in their bones, in their joints, in their heads, didn't matter. Uh, but uh, I think you're implying here, really importantly, that people use opioids also for relief of psychic pain. They're very effective for people who uh, have uh, trauma and uh, suffer emotionally because they mitigate pain. They mitigate physical pain and they mitigate psychological pain. So are these being uh, prescribed in the um, psychiatric field as well as within the, the pain management field? They're being uh, prescribed on both Actually fronts? Actually not. Actually not. Psychiatrists never started prescribing opioids for the variety of conditions that are common in our practices, depression, trauma, psychotic bipolar disorder, um, no, uh, we we uh, kept our prescribing uh, to non-opioids, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications. It was the general medical field that uh, began the enormous uh, uh, prescription and over-prescription of opioids. So you said that early on as these medications were being formulated that it was stated that they're not addictive. So... Are these now, do we know now or do you know now that these are physiologically addictive or are they addictive because of the feeling that we're getting from them or is it a combination of the two? Where do we stand on the addiction front? Indeed, it is a combination of the two and it's indisputable. Uh, uh, For a person who uses three, four pills of Oxycontin, no less heroin, for a week, they start to experience craving, which is uh, the result of their body uh, having developed some early dependence, some wanting more of the same stuff that helped them, uh, that relieved their uh, physical or emotional pain. So these are, uh, and uh, some people discover also, not even without physical, kids uh, whose friends give them these pills or adults who who get a hold of these pills, they discover, oh boy, they hardly ever felt this good in their life. That's how powerful and effective these uh, opioids are. And uh, consequently, people then try to uh, repeat that experience, find, find more drugs to do the same thing. So where are we now with this? Are these still being prescribed readily by the medical field, or has this now become an issue of illegal drug use? Doctor prescriptions, at least in the United States, for opioids have gone down, uh, not in a major way, but in a significant way for the past two years. But deaths continue to arise. And uh, that has to do with uh, the inaccess, in part, uh, the inaccessibility of the pills. Pills are harder to get, they're more expensive. And if you're dependent on Oxycontin, Vicodin, 
uh, you and your doctor says, I'm not going to do this anymore, you know, that everybody's watching me because we are, um, they begin to then uh, shut down the supply of uh, opioids for people who have been on them for a long time, some of them actually well managed on the medication. And what does a person then do? They're, they're in withdrawal. This withdrawal from opioids is a really lousy state. It feels awful. And there's only one solution, which is more opioids. So they, um, they can't spend $500 on pills. They can't get pills, uh, even from the black market. They, uh, they purchase heroin. Heroin is the cheap, accessible, and uh, as effective or more effective uh, uh, pain reliever as are these pills. So we've seen a shift from uh, pills and overdose deaths from pills to uh, a shift back to heroin, uh, which has preceded the opioid pills, and uh, greater deaths from the heroin. And uh, finally, that's related to the fact that the heroin is now mixed or laced with even more potent synthetic drugs like uh, fentanyl, uh, which is highly deadly. So uh, that's so we've seen a shift in what people are using and how deadly the substances are. What is in place in the medical field of the opioids now? Well, the uh, two most important medications that actually are enormously life-saving and are not highly used. One is the reversal drug. This is called the uh, naloxone or Narcan. You see this with first responders. Somebody has uh, taken an overdose and they spray some of this medication in a nose or they inject it into a muscle. And within seconds, somebody wakes up no matter how um, comatose they may be, how depressed their respirations may be. Can't revive a dead person, but naloxone is the antidote. And uh, in, this, in, this, in my state, it is available without a prescription. So we're trying to get this life-saving medication, not just in the hands of first responders, but into families and friends who recognize that there is uh, opioid use going on around them. The second is a treatment medication. Uh, and it's called buprenorphine. Its trade name is Suboxone. And uh, it is a uh, pill or a film tab taken daily by somebody who has an opioid, has a heroin or Oxycontin addiction. And this is a substitute medication, and it doesn't get people as high, and it's very, very hard to overdose on it because of the nature of the drug. And in France, when this medication was introduced almost 20 years ago, overdose deaths from uh, opioids, from heroin, dropped by 80% within three years. And uh, so this is a life-saving medication, and uh, for some people, it's a uh, use is for a year. For some, it is for a very long time because they have a chronic condition. Those are the two principal life-saving medications that we have that we're just not using enough of. There was, um, it's funny enough because when we spoke last week, you and I on the phone and we were talking about our show, uh, within a day, I think, it came on the the radio that and across uh, the television wires as well that the Ontario is now allowing police to administer naloxone without worry of retribution if it's a 
So I, I'm not 100% sure of what was going on there. I guess perhaps there were probes into the police using the naloxone. And now I think so obviously with that legislation coming through or whatever you want to call that, that we do have an issue here, at least in Ontario. So that's it's, it's that's great to hear. And I hope that uh, extends beyond police and first responders to families affected by uh, this epidemic. Because they they can come upon a loved one uh, who has overdosed. Uh, just you know, just along this, uh, just before we go to break here, just along that front here with the naloxone, um, people uh, on opioids are they dangerous when the police are approaching them? Uh, on Generally the contrary, speaking? mostly they're highly sedated, or if the police have been called, they are hardly breathing. Okay. Uh, because opioids depress uh, respiration. So, no, this is unlike some other Medicaid, other drugs uh, that, uh, you know, in the past were regarded as excitatory, whether they're stimulants or PCP, angel dust. Those uh, sometimes produced very aggressive reactions uh, in the user. Uh, this is not the case with opioids. Okay, so the police are being allowed to use this as a life-saving um, strategy then. So that's that's good to hear. It was just an odd timing of, of that to come up after we yeah, had just spoken. Yeah, great to hear. It is good to hear. We're gonna, this is a, a natural pause here for us to take a break, because when we come back, um, I really want to get more into some demographics and things. So we'll take a break for a few minutes, and we'll be back with Dr. Lloyd. You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with Dr. Lloyd Sederer, and we're talking about the opioid crisis. You can reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on all three, and our email is thh at radiomaria.ca. I just would like, Dr. Lloyd, to acknowledge um, that we have covered some of the questions that are sent in by our listeners, and it's probably a good point to uh, add in a couple. And again, if these are out of your area of knowledge, we're talking a little bit more about demographics on one of them. Just, you know, feel free and we can perhaps look that up ourselves. So uh, a few of the questions that were asked, um, what has caused the opioid problem? And I do believe, is there anything more you'd like to say on that front? Uh, There is, of course, the human element, uh, which is that uh, people use these drugs because they serve them, they, they help them until they don't. Uh, and that's really an essential thing to understand because these are not bad people, weak people. These are people who have pain, physical pain, emotional pain, or just want to get away from the everyday grind. And these medications work. They work immediately, powerfully. Uh, and so there's the human element. And that need uh, to, for pain relief is greater, of course, in people who have uh, early trauma, who have lives of displacement, who have lives where uh, they're uh, subject to violence. Uh, so there is the human element in addition to all the social uh, and prescribing activity that's gone on. Okay. Um, Another question is, do you think that opioids are the worst drug problem that we're facing? No. Okay. (laughs) The biggest killers are tobacco and alcohol. 
Okay. By huge margins. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's if uh, from a public health point of view, the the biggest cause of illness and death in the world is tobacco. And uh, after that, it's alcohol. And then you uh, slide down a few uh, levels and uh, we have opioids. Okay, fair enough. Um, is the opioid issue all about pain? I think we're broaching that subject now. Um, initially, the opioids were about pain, but has this crossed over into mental health? Well, it's always been about uh, uh, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And uh, that, uh, so it, it is a mental health problem. And uh, some people with existing mental health problems, serious depression, uh, trauma disorders, may come upon an opioid and discover this takes away their pain. And they are then uh, uh, driven, uh, if you will, by uh, need to relieve that kind of pain, just like somebody who has uh, uh, cancer pain or bone pain. So this is just a personal question. Have, do you think that um, the, the issuance and the usage of, of opioids has increased as we have become more and more aware of mental health? I don't know if it's because we've become more aware of mental health. I mean, that awareness has, uh, importantly, grown in the past uh, 10 or 20 years, which has reduced the stigma and, I think, made more people recognize or be able to understand what they're suffering from and get help. Uh, so uh, we may have more awareness, but I don't know if that's a factor in uh, people using more uh, uh, these substances. Okay, and uh, another question, this may be a little bit uh, difficult for you to answer, but I'll ask it anyways. Are, are opioids an issue in Canada as well? I think they're an issue in most every country, though I am uh, unfortunately not familiar with uh, the rate of overdose deaths uh, in Canada uh, or uh, what's happened with prescribing of these uh, drugs uh, uh, north of the United States border. Sorry. That's that's fine. Um, And the last question I have at the moment, are opioids coming from within the U.S. border or are they being imported? They're principally being smuggled in uh, and uh, particularly the synthetic drug uh, fentanyl. Uh, It's easy to smuggle in fentanyl because it takes tiny amounts to do a, a lot of damage, uh, you know, like a, a, a grain or two of salt is enough to uh, kill uh, everybody in your studio. So it's easy to smuggle in. It's principally manufactured in China and smuggled into the United States through our ports. There are now some labs uh, emerging in the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised in Canada as well, to manufacture uh, fentanyl. Uh, because it's uh, so uh, profitable and it's easily uh, synthesized. Uh, So uh, this is coming from within and without. And the fentanyl is being cut into the opioids? That's an issue that you brought up earlier? Yes, yes. So if you're a dealer uh, or if you're somebody with a heroin addiction, for example, um, the dealer uh, has to buy heroin. It's it's more uh, bulky. Uh, a tiny little bit, a grain of uh, fentanyl in a bag will make that bag 10 or 20 times more powerful. And, uh, and you can sell it for more money uh, and with a lower cost. 
And for people who are dependent on heroin, they've been using for a while, and the stuff that they're buying is usually cut dramatically, so they barely get uh, enough to uh, overcome their withdrawal. So they're so even the user is eager for more powerful substances, and uh, they're uh, consequently at risk. So you have to graduate with potency. You get used to one level, you level off, and you have to increase the potency for the same effect? Yes. Okay. That's called tolerance. Okay. Now, um, the demographic um, of the people that are most heavily impacted, is there within the United States a particular demographic that is emerging Yes, it's not that uh, poor people and people of color, inner city people, aren't uh, still substantially affected or involved with uh, heroin. It's just that uh, white, middle-class, middle Americans are now the uh, bursting population, and this has been the case for the past 10 years, talking about the Midwest, talking about uh, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, west and going southwest Virginia, um, going north uh, Maine and New Hampshire. These have become epicenters of uh, OxyContin and now heroin and fentanyl distribution. Why is that? Is Is there a logical reason? Well, some of the patterns followed uh, truck routes. Uh, So uh, Um. uh, the, you know, and and, uh, those would be natural distribution points uh, for people to gather by uh, from, uh, uh, you know, a truck that was smuggling in. And then there is also this uh, social dimension that uh, these are hard hit economically and otherwise uh, areas of the United States. Uh, jobs are down. Prospects are poor. Uh, many people have been manual laborers and they have chronic pain, uh, arthritic pain, just from uh, building houses or um, being carpenters or, or working in, uh, uh, in factories. So uh, th- this is uh, uh, access has grown because the uh, dealers uh, see this is a you know, there's a market out there, and there's a market that is emotionally suffering and that has a fair amount of physical pain. Okay, we just had a question emailed into us. Is there an issue with mum to baby as far as pregnancy? Can babies be born addicted to opioids? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's not an uncommon occurrence, and babies, uh, uh, newborns have to be uh, detoxified. They have to be withdrawn safely over a number of days. Uh, because uh, the uh, opioid passes uh, through the placenta to the uh, um, the fetus, and the fetus is born dependent on the drug. Okay, so let's turn this around. We've got sort of the uh, the the negative aspect of all of this. We've got everything in place. Your book gives um, hope in many different ways, and you identified ten factors for determining how. Um, uh, an individual interact with the psychoactive. So maybe are, are these points? Do you want to get out like the most? Um, who might be most susceptible to have yeah. interaction? So let's talk about that, and then um, we're going to get to the positive aspects of, of how this can be turned around. So you get you have these t- ten key factors. So maybe you want to to dive into the most important ones that you you would like to discuss. 
sure. They all represent examples of how we humans are active ingredients in our experience, what happens to us when we take a drug. It's not just the drug, it's the person. So for example, uh, a person who has had uh, um, uh, early life uh, full of neglect or abuse, a person who has been incarcerated, a person who is uh, a combat veteran uh, exposed to all kinds of trauma, these are internal uh, dimensions, the interior that a person brings to their experience of a drug puts them at risk. Those are conditions that put people at much higher risk because they're in pain and their their mind, their soul is looking for some relief. So the interior, our psychology, our background, our trauma experience, this counts. Um, in addition, uh, the environment in which we live is another risk factor. Uh, and uh, the, the, perhaps the best examples there uh, pertain to uh, combat soldiers. When you live or uh, in a uh, world where every day your life is threatened, where you see your fellow soldiers injured or murdered, um, this uh, this environment uh, produces risk because it's such an unbearable environment. And we know that soldiers, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia years ago, uh, used a tremendous amount of heroin to cope with being in the jungles, to cope with being uh, endangered every day. Age is another factor, and then maybe we can move beyond. But age is very important, particularly uh, now that uh, cannabis has been legalized in uh, Canada and increasingly available in the United States. It makes a very big difference if a person starts using cannabis when they're 12, when they're 20, or when they're 30. And the reason for that is our brains are under construction well into our 20s, even longer for young men than women. And when we have a brain under construction, and, uh, what that means is the, the brain is still uh, maturing and it's laying down myelin, which helps its conduction and helps us uh, more function better. But while that's under construction, high doses, high, highly potent cannabis, which is what is available now, can get in the way of that development. So for youth, uh, one of the messages is, uh, you know, not now. See how long you can put it off. It's not that you're necessarily going to never use this, but you might want to think about your brain under construction. Wow, I have so many questions. I just want to ask about that last comment, but I, I think I'll avoid them at the moment because that's a complete other show. But um, so where do we go from here? What policies would you like to see in place? Is there one single course of action. Let's really get into that, really end off things here on the real high positive note. Great. Uh, the uh, public health approach is uh, pretty basic. Uh, it starts with prevention. How can we um, keep people from using these substances? And that starts with youth and that starts with families. And this is about teaching youth um, uh, skills, cognitive skills, decision-making skills. Otherwise, how are they going to respond when another kid comes up, you know, in the fifth grade uh, lunchroom and says, do you want to smoke some of this pot? 
Um, they, we can teach kids uh, skills. We can teach them about their brains. And we can teach families about what's protective. Uh, families that spend time together. This is a well-established uh, uh, finding that if you have dinner with your kids, um, they are much less likely to turn to troublesome behavior, including drugs. So prevention is where everything starts. And then uh, with any chronic disease, because addiction is a chronic disease, early detection is essential. The sooner that a disease is identified, whether it's high blood pressure or cancer, the more likelihood we have of being able to help somebody beat it. And that's about screening. That's about um, in schools and in primary care practices, asking and measuring use of substances, including tobacco, uh, in order to detect it early. And then there's treatment. And uh, treatment is always best when it combines different approaches. It's not tough disease to overcome. So uh, a reliance just on 12-step uh, recovery programs, AA, is not sufficient. Reliance on medications alone, like we were talking about, buprenorphine, suboxone, and some others, um, is all also important but not sufficient. There are uh, cognitive therapies, ways that help people uh, control their triggers. So you relapse with drugs is about triggers. It's about seeing somebody use, a friend calling up who's high, watching something on television. And so we learn, we can learn about our triggers and how to uh, mitigate them. And there are motivational techniques. When we put these all together, these are very effective treatments and people can uh, get into recovery, stay alive. Are there policies that you have in mind that you think that could be put into place to further the prevention and to, to decrease the crisis? Yes. Uh, and here in New York State, for example, we're uh, working to make screening, to make the standardized questions <clears throat> about substance use uh, as common as taking your blood pressure in primary care. Uh, that, uh, that's a way of uh, doing that. Doing that in schools is, is also a really good policy, but uh, schools are uh, more uh, uh, hesitant to uh, do that, uh, I think, in part because they have so few resources and it's not their, you know, it's not a, a they're not a disease treatment site, just like schools don't, uh, don't take your blood pressure. Um, but uh, or your uh, your sugar levels, but uh, schools that have health clinics, yes. So um, these these are policies about detecting the problem and then effective treatment. Effective mm -hmm. treatment combines these different approaches, gives somebody a chance. And I'm assuming these are and, state and by on, state on policies. The policy, yeah, on the policy side, um, the um, uh, my uh, mental health clinics. We're going to require uh, mental health clinics to prescribe Suboxone, the, uh, the uh, maintenance medication for people with addiction, and to help with dispensing naloxone. You don't need a prescription. And we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to step up because it turns out not an insignificant number of people who go for mental health care are using opioids or even have an opioid uh, disorder. So we're going to uh, join... Um, what's the existing uh, specialty substance use 
field where you can get these medications, but it's a very uh, limited resource there. Not many substance use clinics, there are a lot more mental health clinics. We're going to step up and we're going to uh, contribute by trying to uh, help these people in mental health settings where they often come for depression or other kinds of problems. And we also want to see this happen in primary care settings. And I think that will happen, but that's not immediately on the horizon, at least not in New York. Well, I was just going to ask you, have I any... Mean, there are some exceptions, but but as a rule, as a policy, it hasn't happened. Have you seen any light at the end of the tunnel? Unfortunately, you're going to have to, this is going to have to be the last question here. But have you seen any light at the end of the tunnel, or is this just too new of a, a, a tackle that you are initiating right now? No, I, uh, there are early signs that this is starting to take root. There have been so much media like yourself uh, pointing this out, pointing out that there are effective ways to mitigate this epidemic to help people stay alive. So uh, even the story about the policing in uh, Canada, I mean, these are ways by which slowly we're changing the culture so that people are kept alive and treated. I have one other question that just popped in, and uh, then I and I think we have time for it right down here. Is there application for opioids, or are these should these just be pulled right out of out of practice, or can you that, still that would be a mis- that would be a mistake. That would be a, a true overreaction. So there if is. I fra- if I fracture my arm, if I have a surgery. Uh, uh, I want these medications, and they are really good, uh, effective uh, pain relievers uh, for a period of days. So we and need to build- enable people to recover and, and mobilize, which is so essential to recovering from any uh, uh, trauma or uh, surgery. So these are effective drugs, uh, and we need them, uh, but we have to be careful with them. So we need vigilance on the medical end, really, is what we're talking yes. about. Okay, yes. perfect. Now, your book, where can we find your book? It's called the, let me just grab the title here and make sure that I get it absolutely correct. It is called The Addiction Solution, Treating Our Dependence on Opi- Opioids and Other Drugs. Where can we find your book, Dr. Lloyd? You can find it on Amazon. You can find it from my publisher, Simon & Schuster, uh, and perhaps even your local bookstore, but online it is much more reliable. Except we have a strike going on here in uh, Canada with our post system, so try and get it at the bookstore if you want to give it around the holiday season. Now, your Twitter yeah. handle is Ask Dr. Lloyd, A S K D R L L O Y D. Anything else you would like? Any other uh, social media handles you'd like to give us, or is this your main one? That's the main one. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, it's quite a conversation. It's something that I think needs to be brought to the forefront. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Dr. Lloyd. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.
You have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.